Weather Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. EcoReport is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. And financially supported by listeners like you. Hello. For WFHB, I'm Todd Wicks. And I'm Juliana Daly. Today we have a feature by Norm Holy. Norm speaks with Dave Konitsky, a professor at IU Bloomington in SPIA, the School of Public and Environmental Affairs. We also have a naturalist report from the Brown County Hour. Jim Eagleman celebrates a common local mammal, the possum. That's coming up later in the program, but first, your daily headlines. This week's climate strike, Friday, September 20th, is inspired by a teenage activist from Sweden, Greta Thunberg. 16-year-old Thunberg started her Friday strike for climate just over six months ago. She started alone, demonstrating outside the Swedish parliament, holding up a sign calling for stronger climate action. Her steadfast conviction has energized a movement. Earlier this week, she spoke to the U.S. Congress. Here are a few of her words from her speech to the House Ways and Means Committee. Quote, The U.S. is a nation that to many is a country of dreams. I also have a dream that governments, political parties, and corporations grasp the urgency of the climate crisis and come together despite their differences as you would in an emergency and take the measures required to safeguard the conditions for dignified life for everyone on earth. Because then, we millions of school children can go back to school. I have a dream that people in power, as well as the media, start treating this crisis like the existential emergency it is. So then I could go back to my sister and my dogs, because I miss them. In fact, I have many dreams, but this is the year 2019. This is not the time and place for dreams. This is the time to wake up. This is a moment in history where we need to be wide awake, and yes, we need dreams. We can't live without dreams. But there is a time and place for everything, and dreams cannot stand in the way of telling it like it is, especially not now. And yet, wherever I go, I seem to be surrounded by fairy tales. Elected officials all across the political spectrum spending their time making up bedtime stories that soothe us, that make us go back to sleep. These are feel-good stories about how we are going to fix everything, how wonderful everything is going to be when we've solved everything. But the problem we are facing is not that we lack the ability to dream or to imagine a better world. The problem is that we need to wake up. It is time to face the reality, the facts, the science. And the science doesn't speak of great opportunities to create the society we always wanted. It tells of unspoken human sufferings that it will get worse and worse the longer we delay action, unless we start to act now. Unquote. On Friday, IU students leave class at 11.30 and gather on the Bloomington campus at Dunmeadow at 12.30. 
After a short rally, climate strikers marched through campus and on to People's Park on Kirkwood, assembling there at 2 p.m. From People's Park, climate strikers continue west on Kirkwood, gathering for a final rally at City Hall. Bloomington Mayor John Hamilton speaks to climate strikers at 3 p.m. WFHB will broadcast more reports from the Bloomington climate strike. Officials at Lake Monroe say there's a silver lining to this year's flooding. For the first time, nesting ospreys near the lake produced a fledging chick. Ospreys have nested at Lake Potoka for years, so adopting Lake Monroe is not a surprise. Reservoir wildlife specialist Rex Waters says the high water level kept people away from the nesting structure on a peninsula by Fairfax Beach this year. He says in past years, human activity there disturbed the hawks and prevented them from raising their young. This year, because of the high floodwaters, they were protected from human foot traffic, which allowed the ospreys to complete the raising of their young to fledge stage. Waters says, for the most part, the flooding didn't affect visitor numbers at the lake this summer, despite the water being 15 feet higher than normal for much of the main boating and fishing season. The Environmental Protection Agency announced last week that it has finalized a repeal of the Obama-era clean water rule that spells out protections for large and small bodies of water. The EPA will create a new rule to replace the regulation which was established in 2015. The Trump administration's rule is expected to cover fewer waterways than the current one and weaken existing protections. Soon after he was inaugurated, President Trump signed an executive order directing the EPA and the Army to review and rescind or revise the regulation. The order said that it's in the nation's interest to keep waterways free of pollution while still promoting economic growth and cutting regulatory uncertainty. Many businesses have opposed this, the Obama rule, arguing that it was overly broad. The Trump administration's revision of the rule is being touted as one that would provide states and landowners with greater clarity and certainty about protected bodies of water. At a press conference last week, Andrew Wheeler, the head of the EPA, noted to reporters that many states already have their own protections for their waters. The administration says the new rule will mean property owners will spend less time and money contesting practices. Wheeler has a long history of supporting coal companies. He previously worked in a law firm representing coal mining and lobbying against the Obama administration's environmental regulations. Wheeler has also served as chief counsel to Senator James Inhofe, prominent for his rejection of climate change, and Wheeler is a critic of limits on greenhouse gas emissions and the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Environmentalists fear the new rule will lead to more pollution, especially in smaller bodies of water that will no longer have protected status. Republican Senators Mike Brown and Joni Ernst of Iowa introduced legislation that would put a new definition in statute to provide permanent certainty so that future administrations can't undo Mr. Trump's rollback. Toxic water in Johnson County, Indiana, has been linked to a rise in cancer, especially in children. Parents in Franklin, Indiana, are alarmed by the community's high incidence of childhood cancers. The chemical trichloroethylene, or TCE, 
which the National Institutes of Health have designated a human a known human carcinogen has been found in the drinking water and air. TCE is used as a degreaser and dry cleaning solvent, and a former Franklin company used it in manufacturing electrical parts. The firm dumped its wastewater into the city's sewer system for ni- from 1961 to 81. TCE is under investigation as the possible culprit. Over the past decade, 68 children in Johnson County have been diagnosed with cancer, according to the nonprofit If It Was Your Child, which the parent of one of the afflicted children started. The National Cancer Institute notes that the county's pediatric cancer rate is 21.7 cases per 100,000. That's more than three cases higher than the state and national average. Among all U.S. counties, Johnson ranks in the 18th, excuse me, in the 80th percentile of children's cancer diagnosis. Previously, we reported that neonicotinoid insecticides, or neonics for short, are killing bees. A new study of wild birds, the first of its kind, has found that neonics might be killing songbirds also. Researchers at the University of Saskatchewan studying the neonic imiclopred found that eating one or two seeds treated with it, the birds immediately lost weight and became unable to undertake their long flights south. It took the birds over three and a half days to recover and migrate. The disruption of the species migration pattern caused a decreased ability to reproduce and survive. Today, the population is over 70% of North America's songbird species is failing. The European Union banned neonics last year because of their effects on pollinators, although the EPA said in May it would cancel the restrictions on 12 neonics. In July, the Trump administration approved the continued use of sulfoxiflor, a neonic that's fatal to bees at low doses. In the following feature story, Norm Holy talks with David Koniski about energy policy. For WFHP, today I'm speaking with Dr. David Koniski of SPIA. He's going to talk about energy policy and political policy. Towards newer sources of energy. So in the public opinion polling that both I have done and others in the field have done, we see extraordinarily strong support for the expansion of renewable technologies, wind, solar, and other kinds of sources like that, um, as well as less support for things like coal, which they associate with all sorts of environmental bads. And then fuels like natural gas sort of fall somewhere in the middle, right? People sort of recognize sort of the benefits of natural gas relative to coal, let's say, but also see some of the environmental and health harms that come along with it. Do we think locally or do we think more globally in terms of energy policy? Yeah, it's interesting because as we we, we tend to talk about energy and climate, we naturally think about the global nature of these problems. But most Americans, at least, tend to think about uh, these issues in a more proximate way, right? They tend to put more value on perceptions of local environmental harms from utilizing these resources or the benefits, depending on the source in question, as well as the local economic implications. 
be in particular the cost of the different fuel sources. So we tend, so when you really dig down into how Americans think about energy and energy sources, they tend to put much more emphasis on what's near and dear to them, what's closer to them, and concerns around climate change are a little bit secondary. That said, that has begun to change a little bit. Um, people are increasingly making sort of connections between energy use uh, and these, you know, global problems like climate change and thinking about not just local environmental impacts, but also implications for, for the climate. Do you think coal will be Indiana's future for a long time to come? Yeah, well, you know, the energy transition occurring here in the state is a very slow one. You know, the state still relies, I'm not sure the exact figure, but maybe three-quarters of our energy, our electricity, I should say, comes from burning coal. And we're beginning to see some of the, the large utilities move away from coal. Uh, both Vectorin and NIPSCO have you know, announced longer-term plans to transition away from coal, in the case of NIPSCO, towards uh, renewable sources, whereas Vectorin wants to rely more on natural gas in their short term. But Duke, which is the other major utility in, in the state, has a much they're on a slower timeline, let's say, around coal. They 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 have much more invested in in that resource, and it seems like they're want to stick with it for a while. The interesting thing about Indiana is, in comparison to other states around the area, is that you know the market conditions are all the same, right? They're affecting the choice of technology uh, similarly across the country, right? So the fact that renewables are now increasingly affordable and that natural gas is a, a viable alternative all puts pressure on coal and makes it difficult for coal to remain a viable energy source. But what's different about Indiana from most of our the Midwestern neighbors, but also states in, on the coast, is that we lack policies to push this, to make this happen faster, right? So we are a government in the state has not been putting in place uh, uh, mandates or even strong incentives for the states move away from coal. So the transition uh, is a little bit slower than what we're seeing in other parts of the country. Is there much uh, public sentiment in favor of renewables such as wind and solar? There certainly is across the country, right? If you look at almost all uh, polling that's done across the United States, and this is true of both Democrats and Republicans, there is overwhelming support for um, the expansion of solar and wind power and other renewable technologies. Um, this is an issue that sort of transcends the typical political cleavages that we have around lots of issues in this country. Um, there's just overwhelming support for all, any number of policies to try to encourage the wide-scale deployment of renewable technologies. I've not seen, I can't speak to particularly about Indiana on that front, but I would, I would, my, my impression would be that that's no different here. People generally are favorable towards those new technologies. On the pollution front, do we have a an economic gradient so that the poorer communities have the most pollution? Yeah, that's that is definitely the case. Unfortunately, um, you know, there's now decades of social science research that has um, looked at the distribution of uh, environmental and health harms associated with not just energy use but with all sorts of 
other other industries, other technologies that produce environmental harms and adverse health impacts. There's really strong evidence that both in terms of where these facilities are located, but also the releases of pollution that comes from them, that that tends to be higher in communities of color and communities of low income. No way to say that is, you know, you're much more likely to find a polluting facility uh, in a place where there's a higher percentage of African Americans, Hispanics, or other or other people of color, um, and there's, there's no strong evidence that this has been uh, this is a long-term phenomenon that has to do with broader features of American society and politics having to do with housing discrimination and redlining and segregation in some places, um, but also longer-term patterns of, of local zoning and and how people, sort of the residential choices that people make. So it's a very complicated subject, but the evidence that these, um, that you do find higher levels of pollution in communities of color and low income is pretty, is pretty, it's a pretty strong finding in the social science literature. I, I'm just curious uh, about the community of, of Evansville because uh, there's so many coal-fired plants around uh, Evansville, but yet that, that is a, you know, fairly prosperous community. So is there much... Uh, pushback uh, by the citizens? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, so, you know, in this in environmental justice literature that I was just referencing, that's sort of a, a pattern that exists across the country. That doesn't mean that in every instance you're going to find, you know, these um, power plants or other kinds of large industrial facilities only located in communities of color um, or low income. You know, there's lots of other reasons that help um, help us understand where facilities like power plants are located. One, right? One is being near water resources, right? Um, or in being next to other or proximate to other important amenities for industries such as transportation networks and things like that. Um, so that may be more relevant in places like Evansville. Um, now, is there community support for those plants? You know, it's a, it's a double-edged sword, right? I mean, there certainly are there are jobs and other economic benefits that come with having and hosting large facilities. Um, but there are also these environmental uh, harms that come along with it and the public health uh, harms that come along with all the pollution that these facilities release. Next week, we'll be playing the second part of Norm's interview with Dave Kozinski. And now, Jim Eagleman of the Brown County Hour comes across an opossum while he was out hiking. Jim tells us more about this mammal common to our local environment. The other day I saw an opossum scamper up a hill when I was on a walk. The little critter wasn't an adult, but a sub-adult. Some call a juvie, short for juvenile. This animal made me recall all the things we used to inform the public about the opossums at our park nature talks. Namely, that the opossum is a survivor. I have no doubt this little guy will do fine this winter. Also called polecat, woods rat, or forest kitty, I've heard, the possum is a relic of times gone by. We understand that a critter not too much changed from today's version was living at the time of the dinosaurs. If that isn't a testament to survivability, I don't know what is. So when you see an opossum, what is it that allows it to last all this time on the face of the earth? Ask yourself, what qualities does it possess to make it nearly invincible? Take a look at this critter the next time you see one poking around your compost pile or woodshed or lumbering down the county road. Never in a hurry, this ambling gait of the animal 
it's a sideways lumbering walk, makes you assume it is slow thinking in addition to slow walking. Maybe even dumb or witless. No, its slow, calculated manner has helped it avoid trouble. Like dogs, people, and predators, even cars, but of course, not all cars. We tend to see more possums hit along the roads more than any other Indiana fur bearer, my DNR biologist's friend tell me, when they conduct their annual roadkill counts of coons and deer. If confronted, we know their defense mechanism is to play dead with saliva pouring out of its mouth as they assume a curled-up posture. And all you did was maybe touch it with a stick. This feigning death act has helped the possum avoid almost every attempt to attack or kill it. What predator sees it necessary to continue with their murderous attack if the prey instantly lies limp, motionless, even defecating and rolling in its own feces? Of course, the predator gives up, moves on, and the opossum soon responds from its sleep-like trance and continues its life of scavenging and sampling all the food it can while on its hunting forays. It may be their wide, varied diet that has helped it survive, too. They are omnivorous, meaning they eat crayfish, garbage, anything, left-out cat food, worms, birds, eggs, fruit, roots, nuts, garden produce like corn, squash, tomatoes, and beans, slugs, frogs, grasses, mushrooms, salamanders, the list goes on. Such a varied diet, even carrion, Road-killed crows, coons, even other opossums has allowed this animal to adjust to man's ever-changing environment. It isn't fussy where it lives either, as we know them to take up residency in culverts, brush piles, dumps, junkyards, and other refuse places man creates. So it eats everything it comes upon and lives anywhere it wants. You can bet we'll have the possum with us for millennia to come. I once observed a mother possum crawling out from a dead cow carcass in a field. The bloated body of the cow gave it shelter, all the food it needed, and yep, a quick look inside, there were little babies, maybe seven of them waiting for the mother to return. Its 50 teeth, the most of any North American mammal, will certainly help it attack any food item, even hard-shelled mussels, skeletons of small mammals for their calcium, even dried-up, sun-baked cow flesh. The possum is not picky. You know it to be a member of the marsupials, like kangaroos, those mammals with specialized pouches for the developing young. Born as blind, hairless, tiny versions, they find their way into the nursery inside the mother's pouch. The young stay attached to milk teats for weeks while she continues her life. This is theorized to say the opossums may have helped its future generations with this natal attention. The young are almost all taken care of in the pouch as they mature, nurse, and get strong. Lately, we've heard the opossum's tendency for pest control, that's to rid the garden of injurious slugs, keeps cockroaches at bay, and, and they eat many, many ticks. All these admirable traits of an animal that surely deserves our admiration rather than any disdain. And those opposable thumbs? No, not all thumbs. Technically, toes on their rear feet are called halix. These digits help in climbing and handling finely detailed food, or even to pick up locks, even latches, to open gates and storage boxes, not to mention the prehensile tail, which is adapted for grasping and wrapping around tree limbs. It can hang from its tail for short periods of time, but it doesn't sleep, hanging upside down as some people may think. They've been observed carrying clumps of grass and other materials for a burrow or cavity by looping their tail around it. The awesome possum, another critter living in the Brown County Hills occupying its niche, doing its thing to add to our glorious assembly of Indiana wildlife here for us to see and watch 
admire, and enjoy. Oh, one more thing. Why did the chicken cross the road? To prove to the opossum it could be done. Jim Eagleman, WFHB-FM, the Brown County Hour. Thanks for listening. WFHB, I'm Todd Wicks. And I'm Juliana Daly. Support for Eco Report comes from Blooming Foods Market and Deli, Bloomington's locally grown co op grocery since 1976, offering products with a focus on local, fair trade, natural, and organic, with support for farmers, producers, agencies, and artisans. Blooming Foods Market and Deli on East 3rd Street near College Mall. West 6th Street, near the Courthouse Square, and Shreve Hall on the Ivy Tech campus. Are you looking for a way to make a difference on environmental issues? Here at EcoReport, we are currently looking for reporters and segment producers. Our goal is to report facts on how we're all affected by global climate disruption and the ongoing assaults on our air, land, and water. We also celebrate ecologists, tree huggers, soil builders, and an assortment of champions who actively protect and restore our natural world, particularly those who are active in south-central Indiana. All levels of experience and all ages are welcome, and we provide the training you'll need. WFHB also offers internships. To volunteer for Eco Report, give us a call at 812-323-1200, or email us at earth at wfhb.org. And now for some upcoming local events. Women landowners will host a conservation conversation today. Thursday, September 19th from 11.30 a.m. to 2 p.m. at IU in the Ostrom Workshop. Learn from other women how to care for your land. Go to info at women4, and that's the number 4, womenforthelandorg or call 317-290-3250. Meet Hoosier National Forest employees on Friday, September 20th from 8 to 10 a.m. at Crumble Coffee and Bakery, located at 532 North College Avenue in Bloomington. Get to know all about the forest and the forest leadership. Meet one-on-one and talk about whatever aspect of the forest you are interested in discussing. World Rivers Day cleanup on Sunday, September 22nd, will celebrate World Rivers Day from 8.30 to 9.30 a.m. in the Sycamore Shelter at Lower Cascade Park. Learn the value of rivers and how you can improve your stewardship of rivers. You can celebrate by helping clean up Cascades Creek. An introduction to edible landscaping will take place on Wednesday, September 25th from 6 to 8 p.m. at Hilltop Gardens at IU, located at 2367 East 10th Street in Bloomington. Learn how to design an edible landscape in your yard. Please register by September 24th at bloomington.in.gov slash parks. Forage for Food on Saturday, September 28th from 1 to 2.30 p.m. at RCA Community Park. 
learn how to enhance your usual dishes with wild mushrooms for your pasta or natural remedies for common ailments. Discuss safe practices and useful identification techniques. Register by September 23rd at bloomington.in.gov parks. And that wraps up our show for this week. Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's headlines were written by Norm Holy and Linda Green and Kaylin Huffman Brower. Today's feature interview was produced by Norm Holy and edited by Patrick Callanan. The Opossum Story was produced by Jim Eagleman of the Brown County Hour, and Juliana Daly compiled our events calendar. David Lineman and Kaylin Huffman Brower wrote and edited the script. Patrick Callanan produced and engineered today's show with help from co-producer Kaylin Huffman Brower. For WFHB, I'm Todd Wicks. And I'm Juliana Daly. And this is Eco Report. <laughs>